This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Now we're all being discipled. None of us is neutral. We're all following someone, being shaped by something. The problem is most of us are unaware of this discipleship process. Simply swallow the stories that we're told without reflecting on how that's being shaped us. Beware the stories you read or tell, says Ben Ockrey. Subtly, at night, beneath the waters of consciousness, they are altering your world. How are you being shaped by who you follow on Instagram? How are you being shaped by what you watch on Netflix or listen to on Spotify or see in the media? How are you being discipled by your workplace, your industry, your university, shaped by its worldview and values to fit the cultural mould? God has set us anchor as his church in the world as a city on a hill. We're called to be salt. We're called to be light. But there's a problem when the church ends up looking more like the world than like Jesus. Mark Sayers, who's a pioneer in the missional church movement, says this about the missional church. He says, We went to the pub to reach people for Jesus, but all that happened was that we became more like the people at the pub. If this is a danger for any church, it's a danger for the church that started in a bar, moved to a pub, moved to a community theatre and now makes in a music venue. There's nothing more important for us as a church than to respond to Jesus' call of discipleship and intentionally learn to be like him so that we might be effective for his mission. Now, I'm not saying we should be separate from the world like some kind of monastic community. No, Jesus calls us to be distinct within the world, a kingdom counterculture shining forth the light of his goodness. Now, our hope for this series over the next nine weeks is that every single one of you, every single member of the Anchor family will take your part actively in Jesus' mission of discipleship, both personally learning to be like Jesus and personally making disciples of Jesus. Now, this series has been in the works for about the last year as the staff team has been reflecting on the key questions, what is a disciple of Jesus? And how do we make disciples? And some of the key messages that we want you to hear and take away over the next nine weeks, uh, I've kind of distilled these down to three statements. So one of the first key messages that we want you to take away is this. What is a disciple? A disciple is someone that is learning to love and live like Jesus. A disciple is someone that is learning to love and live like Jesus. A disciple is a learner. But this is a holistic, transformative learning process, not classroom learning. It's embodied in the context of community as we learn from one another in a way that results in inner transformation that overflows into a life of obedience to Jesus' teaching. Second thing we want you to take away is that every disciple is called to be a disciple maker. Every disciple is called to be a disciple maker. We all have a part to play in God's mission of discipleship. Mission and making disciples is not done by the professional pastors or evangelists, but by every single one of us as we share the gospel and our lives with one another and with our neighbours. 
The third thing we want you to take away is how do we make disciples? How do we do that? Well, we make disciples by prayerfully sowing the seed of the gospel into people's lives. We make disciples by prayerfully sowing the seed of the gospel into people's lives. It's only as the gospel takes deep root in our hearts that we'll see fruit in our lives as the Holy Spirit works. And what this means for us is a church that values so highly community, it means that we don't actually make disciples just by hanging out together. We don't make disciples just by being a good friend. That relational context, that community context is vital for discipleship as we learn from one another and love our neighbours. But if we want to see our city transformed by the gospel, by the good news of Jesus, we need to be sharing God's word with people. Now, discipleship is not theoretical. Discipleship is more of a practical apprenticeship than a university lecture. And because we believe that so strongly, we've given you four practices that we want to commit to together as a church family over the next nine weeks as we learn to be like Jesus together. And you'll see these on your follow me postcards. I invite you to get that up because we'll talk through this. So the first practice of discipleship that we want to see saturating our community life is prayer. Prayer is vital to discipleship. The gospel cannot produce fruit in someone's life without a powerful work of the Holy Spirit. And prayer covers and infuses all of the other disciplines and practices. But it's not enough for prayer just to be assumed or we'll neglect it. We want to be a culture where prayer saturates every single corner of our church. And our prayer team this morning, they were gathering in the upper room up here praying for you, praying for our church family that the seeds of the gospel that are planted will come forth and bear fruit in your life. The second practice is reading God's word, learning from God in the Bible. A disciple is a learner. Someone that's learning to be like Jesus. And and a vital part in that transformative process is that we're learning from God's word and responding in obedience. And so because we value that so highly, we've given you an eight-week Bible reading plan that will take us through to the final sermon on the 23rd of September that Matt Sparks has given. And we want to commit to this as a church family. You'll see all the readings on the back of that postcard. There's four readings a week. If you're the kind of person that can only do one of those readings a week, then that's fine. Just do the one or do two or do three or do four. And you'll see that there's an optional fifth one on there as well. We're going to be committing to that together in gospel communities, coming back to that every week in our GCs. How is God shaping us? How are we being transformed by the Spirit? And we really believe that this is vital for spiritual growth in the church, that the Bible is where we hear from God most clearly, that he speaks powerfully by his Holy Spirit as the Spirit takes that word and bears fruit in our lives. Now, Bible reading isn't just about filling your head with knowledge. It's about meeting with God, meeting with God our Father, being transformed by the Spirit into the likeness of Jesus Christ. So you'll see your Bible reading plan on there. So take that with you, put it in your Bible, take an extra one, put it on your fridge, uh, keep coming back to that over the series. They'll be on your seats every single week, so you've got no excuse not to take one home with you. And I'd also recommend getting an Abide journal. So we promoted these at the start of the year. You can pick one up at the Connect desk after the service, uh, $10. I've put my Abide journal in kind of a Kiki K slip, little grey thing, but it's like this cardboard 
thing with lines where you can write um, and journal. And we believe that, you know, Bible reading isn't just something that you, you read and it stays up here, but as you reflect on it and meditate on it and journal on it, um, that that will lead to transformation. So $10 up at the Connect Desk after the service, get an Abide Journal to help you do your follow me reading plan. The third practice that we want to see embedded in our community together is gospel triplets. Discipleship isn't just kind of a solo journey, doing it by yourself, but we do it in the context of community. We need to learn from one another. Discipleship is more than just learning information. It's learning a person and his way of life. It's learning Jesus. And the way that he did his ministry is by calling disciples to follow him. And then we see throughout the New Testament that those disciples, those apostles said, follow me as I follow Jesus. Imitation is one of the best ways to make disciples. So we want to see over the course of this series people getting into gospel triplets within gospel communities. Uh, There's a gospel triplet sign-up form at the Connect Desk after the service. So if you want to get into a triplet where you can read the word together, pray for one another, imitate and learn from one another as we follow Jesus, then sign up for a triplet afterwards. And the fourth practice is mission. Asking someone to read the Bible with you. We believe that God has called all of us to be everyday missionaries to our city and that the way that we will see our city transformed is by sharing God's word, sharing the gospel with people. Now, at the start of this year, we encouraged you guys to do five for five, which is one of our missional approaches that, that we do here at Anchor. So that's selecting five friends, identifying five friends that you want to know Jesus, and then doing five things for them regularly, praying for them, contacting them, blessing them, inviting them to stuff, all with the goal of sharing Jesus with them. Sharing Jesus is the fifth step in that approach. And Over the course of this series, we want to encourage you, challenge you to take that fifth step in five for five, uh, to ask one of your friends, hey, I'm looking for someone to read the Bible with. Is that you? And so for me, I'm going to prayerfully approach my gay friend, Andrew, who I met in the park, and ask him if he wants to read the Bible with me. I wonder who God is putting on your heart, who he wants you to step out in faith And ask someone to read the Bible with them. We believe that God's word, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation. And as we open the Bible, we hear God speak. And we're expecting that as we read the Bible with our friends, that people will be captivated by the person of Jesus. So there are four practices of discipleship. Prayer, Bible reading, triplets, and mission. And we're prayerfully expecting that God is going to use this series to bring transformation in your life, to bring transformation in our community and transformation in our city as we surrender ourselves to our master and his mission of making disciples. Are you ready? Yeah? Before we get into it, I've got to give a big shout out to Katie Wong, who did the sermon series Design, Follow Me. She used her Monday day off this week to produce this for you. So if you want to honour Katie, take this home, put it in your Bibles and use it, because she gave up a whole day to produce this for you. But I just wanted to talk through some of the things that were going through Katie's mind and some of the things that we were talking about as we were producing this artwork. So in the background and in all the backgrounds over our sermon titles slide, you'll see fishing nets. And in the reading that Mitch read out, you saw that as Jesus called the first disciples, Simon and Andrew, they were fishermen... 
and they left their nets. They left everything behind to follow Jesus. We believe that that's what God calls us to do, a life of total commitment to Jesus, leaving our old life to follow him. So that's one of the things there. But also with that kind of WM in the circle, that's really picking up on that key idea of imitation. You'll see that the W and the M kind of mirror each other and that for discipleship to be effective in our lives, it's got to happen in the context of community as we learn from one another in the context of triplets to be more like Jesus. So let's go. Let's begin. I'm going to pray for us, ask that God will bless this series, ask that God will be speaking today as we look at the Master. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would come now and that you would humble us before you. We ask that you'd strip away any pride, thinking that we know better than you, thinking that we can run our own lives our own way. We ask that you would humble us before you, that we would be fully surrendered to you, our Master. Give us clarity today as we think about who Jesus is and the significance of that question for our lives. So bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So our question today in the Master is, who is Jesus? Now I realize at the start of the series, this is kind of like a basic question, right? Who is Jesus? Why are we starting here? We've done this, haven't we? But I want us to see that there is nothing more important for discipleship than this most foundational question of who is Jesus. Jesus is the beginning, the middle, and the end of discipleship. And if we get that wrong, if we get Jesus wrong, then we're going to fail at the first hurdle of discipleship. This is a simple question, but it is the most profound question for our project of discipleship. Are you with me? Do you see the significance of this? You see this throughout the gospel narrative. Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? This is the fundamental question for our lives. And we need to get Jesus' identity right if we're going to understand how to rightly respond to him. And we understand this, right? Like... If you're walking down the street and you saw the Queen, or if you saw our Prime Minister, you're going to respond to them differently than just to a stranger that you pass, because you know who they are. When you, under, when you see and you know and you understand who someone is, that shapes how you respond to them. Now, our culture says, what does our culture say about who Jesus is? That, oh, he's a good moral teacher, he's a failed revolutionary, he's a prophet... They write him off as a fairy tale. Who is Jesus? Well, how can we know? How can we even know who Jesus is? Well, Jesus is an undisputed fact of history, attested by many non-Christian ancient sources. But to get a close-up picture of his life and his teaching and what it looks like to follow him, we need to look at the eyewitness accounts of his life and ministry. And as we open up the Bible, as we open up the pages of the New Testament, we see Jesus jump off the page at us, that he confronts us face to face and reveals himself to us. And so that's what we're going to be doing throughout this series. We're going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark and using that as a springboard to think about discipleship. What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? So this morning, our springboard text is Mark chapter 1, verse 1. So I hope you've got your Bibles out or your phones out and you're following along. 
Mark chapter 1, verse 1 says this, Who is Jesus? The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We're going to be breaking that down for the rest of our talk. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? Because, I mean, this is the heading for the whole gospel. Everything that follows kind of comes under, under this. Jesus is the Christ. What does that mean? Jesus is the Son of God. What does that mean? So first, what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? Well, Christ is not his surname. My surname is Koneman. That's because my dad's name was Jeff Koneman and he gave his name to me. And my kids' names are Eva and Reuben Koneman. And hopefully they'll pass on the name to their kids Christ is not Jesus' surname, it's a title from the Old Testament. It's a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one. In the Old Testament, prophets, priests and kings were anointed with oil. They poured, heads, they poured oil over the heads of these important leaders as they were commissioned as God's chosen ones to do his work. And this term Messiah, Christ, it came to be associated with the hopes of Israel for a king who would reign on the throne of David. And these hopes escalated as the kingdom of Israel was destroyed and dismantled as the Babylonians and Assyrians came in and the people of God went out into exile. The people of Israel began to hope and long for this messianic king and ruler who would come and restore the kingdom of God. And we see this hope in many places throughout the Old Testament, but just one verse I've picked out is Isaiah chapter 9. It's going to be on the screen. What's, what, what does it mean? This, what is this hope that the people have? Isaiah writes, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Imagine the people of Israel. They're under foreign rule, under Babylonian rule, and then Persian rule, and then Greek rule, and then Roman rule. They're longing for liberation. They're desperate for a Messiah who would come and rescue them and restore the kingdom of God back to its former glory. Now, do you remember that as a kid, when you're just kind of longing for your birthday? Like, how many more sleeps? Like we had this with Reuben. He's it was his birthday two weeks ago. Two more sleeps. Two more sleeps till my birthday. Or when you're longing for Christmas, you've just got this deep longing for presents, really. That's what, what you want. What was the last thing that you longed for, that you were eagerly waiting for? Maybe you're waiting for your online shopping to arrive. You're like, come on, hurry up. Maybe you're, you've got an overseas holiday booked in, and you're like, oh, I'm really looking forward to it. We're going down to Tasmania in two weeks, and we're like, oh, yeah. Like counting down the days for our little holiday. Maybe you're desperately waiting for the latest season of Survivor to start on Wednesday. When you're waiting, it creates this longing and anticipation, and especially if life sucks and you're waiting for change, adds desperation to your longing. Imagine the people of Israel under that oppressive rule, desperately waiting and longing for a king to come and rescue them. And then Mark writes... The beginning of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus, 
the Messiah. He's here. This is huge. We see right at the start of Mark's gospel that Jesus doesn't appear on the scene out of nowhere. He comes as the culmination of this long history, this long waiting by the people of Israel that he is the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the Old Testament to his people Israel. And we see Mark emphasize this in verse 2. Open up your Bibles. What does Mark do in verse 2? He quotes from the prophet Isaiah. He quotes from the Old Testament. And what does he say? Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his paths. And then we see John the Baptist come on the scene who Mark interprets as, this, as the fulfillment of these prophecies from Isaiah and Malachi. This forerunner for the Messiah who will make straight paths for the Lord, who will call people to return to God because God's king is coming. God's king is almost here. If John is here, the kingdom is just around the corner. The king is just around the corner. And then when Jesus appears on the scene, Mark chapter 1 verse 15, what does he say? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Mark wants us to see that everything that he's about to tell us about this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the fulfillment of all this Old Testament expectation, this long history of prophecy and waiting that he's here. The king is here. The Messiah is here. Jesus is the Christ. He is God's promised king coming to bring the kingdom of God. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the rescuer. He is God's king. But then Mark goes on to say that Jesus is also the son of God. What does it mean that Jesus is the son of God? Well, Let's have a look at Jesus' baptism in verses 9 to 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God. At his baptism, we see the Trinity on display. We see Father, Son, Holy Spirit united in this bond of love. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, the one who was with God in the beginning. And we see here on display the wonder of the incarnation. Incarnate, in flesh, that Jesus is God in the flesh, God up close, that he is Emmanuel, God with us. In this man, fully man, fully God. In the person of Jesus Christ, we see that God himself has come to set things right in our world. Now, do you realize how significant this is? God hasn't left us in the dark to work out how to get to him. He hasn't left us in the dark to make guesses about who he is. God is not distant. God is not hiding. God is not hoping that you might come and find him. God, our maker, has come to us personally 
in the person of Jesus Christ so that we might know him because he loves us. Jesus has come to reveal God to us. And the only reason that he can do that is because he is God's son. He is God in the flesh, fully man, fully God. So we're going to just spend a little bit of time thinking about what does it mean that Jesus is fully man and fully God? Jesus is fully man. God doesn't crush us under the weight of his glory and authority. You see, lots of times in the Old Testament that if sinners were to come before him in his immense glory and his holy perfection, that we would be consumed. You see this in Exodus 33 where Moses requests to see God's glory. And God says, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. How can sinful humanity come into the presence of this holy God? How can the finite comprehend the infinite? We can't climb our way up to heaven to reach God. And so God comes down to us and takes the form of a man. He comes to us in a way that we can receive him, not in his power and glory to destroy us, but he comes in humility and grace, taking on our humanity so that we can receive him. And in his baptism, we see his identification with sinful humanity, with all of us, and yet he is without sin. Now, it's not like Jesus is like Superman, where, you know, he kind of looks like a man, but really he's from Krypton underneath the suit, underneath as he goes to the Daily Planet. He's from Krypton. He's born of Jor-El. He's not born of the Kents. He's not really subject to the same limitations that we experience. He can just take his suit off and kind of fly into the sky. Jesus isn't like that. It's not like he kind of seems to be a person, but he's not really. No, Jesus is actually a man. He was born by his mother, Mary, having all the same limitations of our humanity that we experience. He got tired. He needed to sleep. He needed to eat. He needed to go to the bathroom. He was subject to pain and grief and even death. And yet while Jesus was fully human, he doesn't live how the rest of us live. You see, the rest of us stumble along in sin and unbelief. We were created to live for others, but we twisted ourselves. We're all mangled in on ourselves. You know, if we're on the moral golf course, our lives are like the weekend hacker. We're having a go, but we're just kind of creating divots all over the place, lost balls, slices and hooks, missing our putts, snapping our clubs over our knees. But Jesus plays the course perfectly. He hits the fairway every time. He never gets stuck in any of the sand traps of sin. See, Jesus lived perfectly under God's rule. He's always obedient to God's law. He was the only one of us, the only person to have ever lived who was without sin. Does that blow your mind? Five minutes don't go by and I don't sin. Jesus lived the 33 years of his life without sin in total obedience to his Father. Where we all fail, he succeeds. And we see this as the Spirit sends him out into the wilderness to be tempted. Have a look at verses 12 to 13. Jesus is sent out into the wilderness to be tested by Satan for 40 days. And this should immediately be ringing ringing bells for us. Mark is throwing in some Old Testament categories here. 
We should think back to that very first temptation in the garden where Adam was tempted by Satan. We should think back to the people of Israel wandering in the desert for 40 years, grumbling against God. And Adam and Israel failed. But where they failed, Jesus succeeds. So he takes our place not just by paying the penalty for our sins, but by offering his righteous life to God in our place. And because of his perfect humanity, Jesus is uniquely qualified to save us as our Messiah. He is the lamb without blemish for our redemption. Through his obedience, we are made righteous, Paul writes in Romans chapter 5. And through his resurrection from the dead, Jesus creates a new humanity that we can take part in. In Christ, we can become who God made us to be. We can become truly human, being transformed to live for others. So if we want to live our lives in a way that honours God, we look to Jesus. He, is, he shows us what it means to be truly human. A disciple is someone that is learning to be like him. But Jesus is not only fully human, he's also fully God. And in his baptism, we see not only identification with humanity, but a differentiation with humanity as well. We see that he is the son of God, anointed with the spirit to give the spirit. And as the son of God, Jesus has a unique authority. This is the one who flung the stars into space, who created all things and sustains them by his word. And then throughout Mark's gospel, we see his authority demonstrated as he calls the disciples and they leave everything, as he teaches with authority from God, unlike the scribes and the Pharisees, as he casts out demons and they flee in his presence, as he heals the sick, as he forgives sins. We see his authority over sin and death as he's raised up in victory. We see his authority as he's ascended to the right hand of God to reign as king of kings, lord of all, that all of us are accountable to him. Every knee will bow before him. Abraham Kuyper wrote this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ does not cry, Mine, your money. Jesus says, mine. Your sexuality, Jesus says, mine. Your family, Jesus says, mine. Your career, Jesus says, mine. Your calendar, Jesus says, mine. Your whole life, Jesus says, mine. We are confronted here in our individualistic, autonomous world that says, no one tells me what to do. I'll do whatever I want. We are confronted with an authority to which we must yield and surrender. Jesus has authority over your life. He is your maker. He is your Lord. He is your king. He is your master. And Mark says this is good news. The beginning of the good news of Jesus. Because Jesus' rule, Jesus' kingdom is always good news. We see here that 
To be a disciple, you're not born into discipleship. It's not something that you can turn on and off. It's not something for Sundays and Wednesdays. It's not a social media follow. Following Jesus demands everything. It's a 24-7 way of life. Now, for some of us, we've got a, a foot stuck in both worlds. You know, you want some of Jesus, but you're still holding on to the dreams of the world. You're seduced by the idols and the promises of having a perfect family, having a successful career, having a great sex life, traveling to wherever and filling up your passport. And this was my story as well. I had a foot in both worlds. I grew up in the church, but I really wasn't living for Jesus. I wanted the same kind of life as my soccer mates. And it wasn't until I was struck by his authority and his grace as I started going to a church that taught the Bible that I saw that I needed to surrender to him and live for him with everything. And so let me ask you, church, are there any areas in your life that you have not surrendered to him? Is there anything you're holding back from him? In what areas of your life are you living your own way rather than living God's way? I know that the Holy Spirit is convicting some of you right now. And don't Ignore that conviction. He is calling you to yield to him, to surrender to him, to live fully sold out and devoted to him. Now, discipleship is not theoretical, remember. Discipleship is practical. So what is this going to look like for you this week? To live with Jesus as your master, to live under his authority. What is it going to look like for you to say yes to Jesus every day when he calls you out in obedience? How will you honour him and please him in your relationships, with your money, with your words, with your thoughts and desires? What will it look like for you to love your neighbour this week as Jesus has commanded us to? Well... Our question that we've been trying to answer, who is Jesus? Who would you say he is? Because that's the question that he asks all of us. Who do you say I am? C.S. Lewis wrote this in his book, Mere Christianity. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I, I don't really accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God and Master. But let us not come with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. He did not intend to. If Jesus truly is the Christ truly is the Son of God, how we respond to him is no longer a matter of personal preference. As God's King, he is our master. He has a unique authority to which we must surrender. And this 
is the foundation for discipleship. If we get this wrong, we're going to be off course for the rest of the journey. Jesus is our master. We are under his authority and instruction. He is the master. We are the mastered. Where he calls, we will follow. Let's pray. Father, we open our arms now and surrender our lives to you. We are struck by your, by your authority, that you are the Lord of lords, that you are the King of kings, that you demand everything from us because you want to give everything to us. Father, humble us now. Help us to open our hearts, to open our lives, to open our hands to you. We ask that you would have your way in our life and that over the next nine weeks that we would learn to be more like you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.